Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast where we interview MedTech leaders about the critical data-driven decisions they make during their product development projects. I'm your host, Andy Rogers. All right, Rachel, thanks for joining. Talking about a, re- a really important topic close to home for me, designing medical devices for the home environment. Yeah. Yeah, something that I've done actually as a design engineer, and I, I know you have as well, right? Yep. Yep. A couple times done a lot of investigation and uh, a lot of work and kind of architecting of devices for home. Yeah. Why don't you give everyone listening uh, and watching, I suppose, just a quick background on who you are, how long you've been at KeyTech and kind of what your specialty areas are. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Rachel. I am a senior electrical engineer here at KeyTech. I have been at KeyTech for seven years, unless you also include I was an intern eight years ago, so almost eight years. Uh, I'm an electrical engineer by by trade and by design. And in that, I have done a lot of different roles on IVD, um, in vitro diagnostic devices, and point-of-care devices. And across that spectrum, you know, delved into both the electrical side of that world and electrical safety and EMC and how they vary for your different environments um, and all those requirements, as well as just base, baseline system considerations and managing devices eventually intended for the home. You know, I think to me, distributed healthcare is here, you know, with, with the global pandemic, it only accelerated things. People weren't leaving their homes and, you know, people just don't want to leave their homes in general. You don't want to go to the hospital. And also I, I feel like, and you can, you can probably speak to this, that the technology is here. You know, you know, when I started at KeyTech 15 years ago, like literally smartphones were just, a, you know, beginning to be a thing. So smartphones are here. Distributed healthcare is, is here. I guess any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think people see it. They see it in their everyday. They see it in their iPhone watches that they can take blood pressure and they can do, you know, your more basic things, but like the kind of remote health aspect of even just smartphones and Fitbits and things has really brought it to people's attention, just general monitoring healthcare in, in that aspect. And it's also bringing in like therapy. How can I, you know, and as you put it, like COVID has just exemplified that, you know, so much more is, you know, people are looking for ways they can use their iPhones to do things and kind of keep it simple and, and get more involved, but also, you know, expanding beyond that to, to actual treatments, um, things that we never thought possible, but are really just getting closer and closer to home with digital technology and, you know, user interfaces and the ability to kind of create a connected world and do almost, you know, kind of telecom doctor's visits as well are really all kind of making it more and more pe- seen that people can see that this is a real path forward. The one thing about kind of a therapy, and I think that's one type of uh, home healthcare device that I think KeyTech actually has done and will continue to do quite a bit of work in that area. You know, the smartphone enabled apps, you know, we're doing that, but the, and, and wearable smartwatches, things like that, those exist. Those are Apple products, you know, Google products, Android platforms, but the ones where there's, it's a combination active wearable or something that a user interacts with and the connected smartphone, I think we're going to be doing a little bit more in that space. And that's actually, you know, one of the, the products I know you've worked on and also showing my age and maybe a plot twist. I actually was a project manager of a home healthcare product. So I've been down the path that you, you have gone down recently and uh, definitely going to, going to, going to share some of my lessons along the way there as well. 
the product I designed was a, was also a body worn monitor, but it was, it was also interrogating something in the body. And I know the product you're working on is, is eventually getting to do that as well. Yeah, it definitely adds to your point, like the, there's monitoring and then there's active kind of patient, like, uh, deliver drug delivery or therapy or really integrating, you know, treatment into in-home wearable. It's a kind of a different ball game, but it's a really unique challenge um, in both in both respects, but de- definitely bringing on the delivering something to a patient or providing something to a patient that brings a unique challenge and definitely more complicated from a safety perspective and uh, FDA's kind of view of the of what you're doing. Right. So when you, when you think about the home environment, certainly you have the, the product and its impact on the patient. But I, I also like to, maybe we should talk a little bit about the home itself. And I, and I thought it'd be a, a fun activity to sort of juxtapose our two completely different home environments. So that the Rachel home environment and the, and the Andy home environment. And, <laughs> and, and it, it's possible that uh, a, a product designer is going to have to design for, for both environments. So, so describe to me what, what I picture your your fairly serene home environment that I'll describe mine. Ah, oh, it's so quiet. <laughs> I come home, I've got my dog who's, you know, very, very needy, but he's always running around getting under your feet. I live in a uh, apartment with a, a nice elevator, but I'm about to move to a hundred year old skinny, skinny town hall or row home in Baltimore city. But yeah, it's, it's myself and my husband and you know, Pretty, uh, pretty peaceful overall, um, but we live in maybe a thousand square feet <laughs> with uh, one floor and uh, we're about to move to three floors and still only a thousand square feet. So it, it kind of is uh, pretty small in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. So when you think about failure modes in, in your house, sounds like maybe your dog could knock over a, a cup or maybe, you know, you could drop something or I don't know. See, it seems like a fairly safe environment for a medical device to live in, would you say? It is, it is. Yeah. With the exception of my dog, uh, I would say it's, a, it's you know, and so it can't be too small or look like a bone. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> otherwise, you know, it's it's pretty safe from, uh, from, my, from my dog. <laughs> Got it. All right, so, so I guess I'll go, my turn. So I have three small children. I live in a brick colonial. I have one corgi. I have one cat. I have two bunnies and I have, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. The last count. So, uh, it's a crazy home environment. I think daily orange juice is spilled on smartphones, on, on TVs. Um, last night I got home, my son had taken a marble and thrown it out a window, broke a window pane. So, uh, you know, anything is fair game to be spilled on or thrown across the house, dragged up and down the stairs. Uh, yeah, completely different environment uh, th- than yours, but um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be at work. I'll tell you, it's nice and quiet. <laughs> so, but yeah, so, but, but on a more serious note, so, I mean, we are certainly able-bodied humans, patients, caregivers, you and I, but uh, I think the reality is that the patients that we're designing these products for, uh, maybe they live alone. And they, they can't, they don't have help. So how do they, how do you design a product that's easy to use, that's reliable, that's easy to, you know, pick up and store, or, you know, maybe it's a, it's a, it's a, you're a parent 
caring for a child. We have a nebulizer at my house and I guess that's the closest I've come to really at home, serious at home medical device uh, use. Uh, that's pretty straightforward, but a parent who's uneducated, uh, really compared to a clinician, I mean, everybody's educated on, uh, compared to a clinician, but a, a scared parent trying to teach their uh, child how to use the device or use the product on their, on their child. And then what happens to the two other children when they pick up the device and drop it? You know, these are real design scenarios that our clients and that we face with these types of products. It's a real challenge and it can be really hard to kind of get your head around all those different facets early on in a project, especially when you know it's going into the home. And I think to kind of add another element there is if you're doing acute or chronic treatment, you have to consider, you know, what what type of treatment and what is the severity of the illness that you're trying to keep, treat at home. So if you're trying to treat a very severe illness at home, you know, there's a different level of faculties and assumptions there that also kind of impact the device, let alone, you know, the person's, you know, financial or other or like home situation. There's the physical rea reality of the illness and the required treatment, how long it takes. And then there's, yeah, there's how, how do you train a person? So it kind of goes all the way from the environment to the, to the patient themselves and what they're dealing with to their ability to understand how to use it, but also comprehend what it's telling them in the end. So if it's a diagnostic device or, you know, it's, it's not a straightforward yes or no answer, it's, you know, giving you some sort of measurement for, I don't know, diabetes or other sorts of illnesses, you know, how can you relay complicated information in a way that someone can understand it? It's a real challenge and it's, it all comes back to, you know, trying to get an early kind of scope of what your device is going to be and how you can design your device to kind of outfit all those different, different elements. And that can be getting it to users quickly. There can be voice of customer studies to understand what is the use cases and what are non-starters for people going through certain things. But there's a lot of ways to kind of ta tackle it early. And I think early is just important, but it, it can be overwhelming to kind of sure. try and gather it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Medical device development in general can be overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Having run a, a project as a younger PM, it's, it's definitely overwhelming uh, from my experience, but I guess let, we beat overwhelming with process, right? That's how, that's how it works. When you think about home healthcare, I think the mo one of the most important sort of backbones to your program is going to be understanding what the collateral standard to the you know, electrical safety, the 60601 standard, the dash one dash 11 collateral standard. Uh, the home healthcare standard is most important. So I know that uh, you've studied that. I've studied that. Uh, you, they basically take the 60601 standard that is challenging to meet for certain products. And they say, oh, you want to put it on a table with a child who has a glass of orange juice next to it. Okay. You're going to have to design it to a completely different level of safety, mechanical, electrical safety. I guess in your experience, Rachel, like what, what are some of the challenges with, um, designing to the dash one dash 11 collateral standard, the one that's more specific to home healthcare usage. Yeah, it, it, it definitely constrains you in, you know, s several areas um, on the electrical safety side, for example, it's very particular about, you know, you've, you've gone, you've moved into this uncontrolled environment. You're now in people's apartments or homes that could be 150 year old are, you know, Baltimore city townhomes, or could be you know, really nice, brand new, rebuilt, remodeled homes with, you know, 21st century best electrical wiring you could ever get. But the home healthcare standard has to assume 
that you don't have that. So it, it kind of puts constraints on your electrical safety design, which really can dictate your entire system level design. For example, earth ground is a, a common tool of protecting the user. You can't assume that in a home healthcare device. So that can really change your entire, you know, system architecture from the get-go. Um, so that's a challenge and that kind of boxes you in a little bit there. EMC and uh, radiation and things like that are are more stringent because again, they don't, they can't, they can't restrict what you bring into your, uh, or your 10 year old brings in from a new toy they got at school and what, you know, what, why, what it's doing and what it's radiating. They can't control that like they can in a clinician's office. So they really have to, you know, your device takes on that responsibility. So this is some specific standards, but also in terms of, you know, physical dropping, whether it's body worn, whether or not your child has a glass of orange juice or really likes to throw, you know, fluid at, you know, as many objects as they can. Those are all considerations now that the standard is trying to grapple with in the kind of the extremeness of the environment. Also, do you live in San Diego or do you live in Baltimore, which honestly we get such extreme or not the most extreme, but pretty extreme weather here. You know, how do you know where the person's storing this? Are they putting it in their attic in a hundred degree summer or are they putting it in their basement in, you know, Antarctica? Probably not, but you never know. So it's like there's just the the home healthcare standard is really kind of trying to grapple with that. And so by doing that, it puts more constraints on, you know, temperature, mechanical stress, electrical safety. Um, and so it requires you to think early and, and kind of plan for that in your architecture. I'd say mostly in the electrical safety is where it has the biggest impact if you were to try move to a clinical device or a in-home device later in life. Yeah, one of the I just took a look at the collateral standard before this meeting because I love reading uh, safety standards, um, and and I, I saw that you know essential performance right that's the key requirement to meet after every one of these tests. Does your product meet essential performance? And I saw one that was was interesting stung at the stuff um, stuck out to me, which was you have to maintain essential performance after the loss of power. Is that something that you've had to design for? It is something we've considered. It depends on the what what your device is is trying to accomplish. If it's it depends on the severity of what your device is doing. So if you are a respiratory device, obviously you have to maintain functionality after loss of power. Um, in other devices, you could claim that you. It depends on your definition of essential performance, but you can claim that it's not a critical, you know, use when you lose power. But a lot of devices, you know, have to have backup power or they have to have. Uh, means of surviving for several minutes after something has powered off. Uh, so that's something we have definitely considered in more, some of the more um, intensive in-home devices we've been uh, looking at architecting, but it's not always required. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. There's at least 10 other examples like that where yeah. it's up to your interpretation, right, of of the risk to the patient and how you can justify these different scenarios. Yeah. So here's another uh theme that, that I, I was thinking about um, before this podcast, which is, you know, home healthcare, the home is the ultimate use environment for these products that are being designed. But as we said earlier, a lot of times in my, in the, in my program, which was a body-worn um, uh, monitor and on the project that you were working on, uh, a therapeutic, actually, you know, you really have to think creative about, creatively about how you're going to design these programs to get the clinical data you're looking for in a clinic at, to prove the therapy works. And then after you've proven it works, then you're designing for the home environment. So it's kind of hacking the product development uh, lifecycle medical devices 
designing something for a clinical trial uh, and then very quickly, you know, updating it for, for home use. So my question for you is how do you design or what, what do you think about when you're designing a device that ultimately would be used in a home environment, but initially needs to be designed for a clinic? How are you thinking like a platform, but it's being designed for a clinic first? Yeah. And, and that's a real challenge. I will say there, you can approach it two ways. You can approach it by going to a clinic and doing clinical data. And that's often required if you have a highly a high safety or high risk device, you, you need to get that clinic because you need, you have in a home, you have uncontrolled and you have untrained users, uncontrolled environment and untrained users in clinic. You, you need to get one of those back. So normally you need some sort of oversight. So in terms of designing a device intended for the clinic, but with home use, you know, what you want to do is you want to get off the get-go with your in-home, you know, 60601-1-11 medical standard. You want to design your electrical safety and things like that for the home because that is hard to undo later or to redo with small changes. It can honestly, it can require a, comply, a completely different device um, if, you start, if you kind of develop, build for clinic and then develop for device later. Oftentimes, that's what you need. If you're in early feasibility, trying to understand what this technology can even do, you don't want to over-constrain yourself in a clinic device. So you want the flexibility. So sometimes it makes sense to divide a device for the clinic as like a prototyping device. And then, and then with, with real purpose, move to a, or a uh, in-home device later. But we have done it the other way too, um, where we designed a device to actually do clinical trials in the home. That has a lot of challenges associated with it because you now don't have oversight. So you also have to interpret your data with the thought of, is my user using it correctly? So it becomes an additional challenge of how do you collect this data and know that you're getting real data. But that is, you know, for less uh, high risk devices, something that you can prove to the FDA is relatively safe. And, and, you know, that you can prove to yourself that someone messing it up won't affect your efficacy results. That's another approach is to go straight to the home. But that is a, it is a challenge. So you really have to be prepared to kind of get that connectivity and get data back and, and really think about structuring your clinical trial from, from a home interface early. Yep. No, I definitely agree with designing the electrical architecture for the finished product for sure. Software is probably in that category too. Yeah. Um, I think where, you know, where you, you want to put all the hooks in place for designing for the, the, the ultimate product, but, but maybe not actually populate everything and, for your trial device. And that, and that can be an additional challenge when you're early and trying to understand how your technology, when you're proving a technology, how you can kind of build in how, it, how that even that, you know, the science works in a lab versus in a home or in a clinic, it can be really challenging to build, to constrain yourself to an in-home environment early. So sometimes you, you make the leap and you, you know, you get, the clinical data with a different device. So let's let's focus on the home some more here. So you mentioned untrained user. Uh, <laughs> there's a plenty at home. Um, I, what what are some examples of like misuse that you've had to consider end user or patient misuse in the home environment? <laughs> yeah, um, I feel like you got to get some of our uh, industrial designers dance to talk about what they've seen at user studies. I think uh, one thing we was, it's you always find a way for someone to use it in a way you could never have imagined. So you can think of every way under the sun someone could use something and you give it to 10 users and I guarantee you someone will use it in a way you didn't expect. So, you know, how you 
how you prepare prepare for that is you get it into the hands of users early. You you really do. And you're never going to catch 100% of those ways that someone deals with it. Um, or 100% of, you know, all the ways someone can deal with it. But it really gives you early insight into the ways that users are going to see it. Um, in terms of, you know, specific things that we've had to deal with is when you're dealing with a therapy with, you know, with someone that has kids in the home, you have to make sure that a child can't pick it up and put it on or do anything to harm themselves. So that can be a real challenge in terms of creating safety lockouts. Sometimes they're as simple as like password protected devices and making sure that it doesn't turn on just with a flick of a switch and other things. But other times it can be more, it can be more stringent. You could have other identification marks or other, it can happen in software or in hardware or in user design. You know, can you design this thing to only fit for a specific person, like custom, you know, orthotics, for an example, uh, but with, you know, the science kind of integrated in that, is there a way you can make the device impossible to use for other people? And normally it's a combination. It's a combination of alerts, uh, lockouts, and designing a device to work as intended. Obviously, the latter, the, the last one is the preferred one, because alerts and lockouts sometimes give you more headaches in terms of alarms and designing to kind of throw errors all the time. You really just want it to be easy to use, but also safe. What are some of the ways that you've incorporated uh, or, or I guess met the increased electrical safety requirements put on you by the Dash 1, Dash 11 collateral standard? What are some of the practices that you employ? You know, a couple of things is the 60601-11 standard or 1-11 standard just constrains you in where you have to begin. So if you're starting from scratch, it does limit you. You have to be very careful about meeting means of protection for your for your patients. That's true of all 60601, but what 60601-1-11 does is it constrains you in how you're allowed to do that. So it can it can end up having a pretty big impact in how you architect your electronics because you don't have the ability to assume, you know, a good earth ground system, you have to design substantially more accredited clearances, et cetera. Um, for another example is, you know, maybe you have a device where you need a simple kind of power plug-in, but how do you ensure that someone doesn't plug in the wrong power cable into your system and, you know, destroy your system? So, you know, it might be you could throw a lockout so that it doesn't turn on if the user puts in the right thing, or more smartly, you design it to accept a wider range of inputs to kind of avoid that error altogether. So those are kind of some examples. On EMC, it's about picking components that are, you know, pre-certified to those specific home healthcare standards. If you can, if you can do that, um, that definitely is a little bit limiting, but it'll save you headache in the long run. So that's, that's very helpful as well. So, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, breaking the rules and getting in the home early to learn as much as you can about the the patient's user environment, user experience. What are they going to experience with this product? And what one aspect of these devices that uh, we haven't talked about much is software. You know, so when you're going into the home to learn about this use environment and the user experience, what should you be looking for, you know, specific to software? Yeah, the software challenges are, you know, pretty, pretty big. The, the, Biggest requirement for software is, you know, looking at how you're going to interface with this device. And that can be both for collection of clinical data to prove what you're doing, which is, you know, sometimes often easily overlooked because you're so busy getting to the product, you forget how you're going to understand what's going on and do maintenance over the air, um, things like that. But there's also interfaces. Uh, cybersecurity is a, is a concern with really all medical products kind of getting into this realm of, um, you know, 
out of network and online presences. But it's also true with, you know, when you get into iPhone apps and things and, and where does the control of your system live? There's a huge amount of challenges to having um, an iPhone, you know, based operating system controlling a medical device. So it can be a real balance there to figure out what you want to have on your device and what your screen is going to look like, what even what even your screen size is going to be. And that relates back to usability, and what information you're trying to display to the user. So there's a really a lot of challenges kind of upstream from collecting the data to how you're going to create that protocol and how you're going to make that protocol work in all cases, you know, as well as down to the actual device level. How are you going to accurately disseminate information to the user? And that really gets at the software, the core software kind of uh, process. Are you making a software that's familiar to users? Do you have an iPhone app or do you have a custom app? And that can really be a challenge from a medical, you know, uh, development standpoint and safety. Um, so it's often about balancing the two, giving the users an interface that they're comfortable with and familiar with, and also having something that is really kind of custom and locked down to make sure that uh, it's safe. Yep. Yeah, totally makes sense. I'm going to, I'm going to pick on the screen size thing for, for, for a minute because you know, I, I did run a project, uh, geez, uh, nine years ago, 10 years ago now. Um, and, and screen survivability was a, a real challenge. So the user, we, we realized what size screen, uh, would fit. And then it became, this is a body worn device. Will the screen and the in, inside of the device, there was an antenna. Will that, will it survive, uh, the pretty stringent drop, um, use environment. So what we, what we ended up doing early on is we created like six different versions of the finished product to figure out which mechanical structure uh, would support these very delicate electronics the best. You know, will the screen survive using, you know, a certain support structure, you know, behind and with foam and things like that. And then from the antenna, you know, it was like, how do you support it? What edges do you support? How many antennas do you need before you start dropping these things? So, um, you know, key is technical de-risking driven by user requirements of a body-worn device being able to survive drop, um, the drop and impact testing. Um, yeah, so it's all tied together, <laughs> user right. and technical. Yeah, yeah it, gets, it also gets into kind of where is your device going to be used? Is it something the user needs to be lying down if it's a therapy or are they, is it 30 minutes a day that this, you know, that they have to use this thing? So they obviously need to be walking around. So suddenly you've got a body-worn, which, you know, has different requirements than like a, a kind of a portable device. And that's all. The 610-1-11 standard actually um, really identifies and kind of delineates whether it's a body-worn, tiny, and really fragile all the way to, you know, if it's a portable device. But one of the things we had to consider on our projects was, you know, uh, if we make this thing small, which seemed good because they need to wear it for potentially a while or use it for, you know, a, a decent amount of time, um, put it, making it small is great, but then if they have to put it on the floor... And it's got like a cord coming off of it. You know, is it a trip hazard? Uh, is it too small that you can even see what's going on? Like, how is the user interacting with this during, you know, during use? It becomes a kind of interesting challenge. How are they going to use this? Rachel, thanks for all your insights today on on a project you worked on. And uh, we, have, we have other uh, projects going on right now. So I'm excited for part two of Can You Survive the Home? And I'm, I'm happy to volunteer at <laughs> my house. My children, my my animals, the 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 bunnies, the the cat, the dog, whatever, uh, to see if these products, you know, will survive in the home environment. So, you know, Rachel, I think you know you and I have been doing this for a while now, and you know, and and I'd say maybe one out of every ten, maybe two out of every ten, bigger substantial projects we're working on 
are, are for the home environment. Uh, but I could tell you that in, in 10 years, 15 years, it's going to be the inverse. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, www.keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.